0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal. I'm Nakia Louie.
1: And I'm Miranda Tapsell. And we're here to talk about all the things this country has trouble talking about.
0: Like relationships, sex, dating, being a total boss,
2: weight and most difficult of all, race. I received a lot of letters from young women saying, finally there's somebody who looks like me. Okay, let's start. So Taps, we
0: talk a lot about being a boss.
1: Yes, right. And what
0: it is to be like a boss, be arch boss queen. I'm still torn on how I feel about that word. But anyway, we talk about <laughs> what it is to be a boss, what it is to be successful, and how does one make it to the top, and what even is the top? But today, we're talking to Marina Go. So, how does a Chinese Australian girl from the suburbs go from editor of Dolly magazine at 23 to the top of the rugby league industry, an industry founded on men? throwing a ball around and running at each other on a field. I still don't quite understand it. I'm guessing she's got her shit together. Cannot wait to talk to her.
1: Marina go. Thank you so much for coming along. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. I just wanted to say just how wonderful I thought Dolly was growing up. Oh, um, thank you. Because uh, especially the fact that the slumber parties that I used to go to were were filled with, um, you know, ripping the sealed section yeah. of the Dolly magazine <laughs> and reading it. I personally felt uncomfortable. I used to protest and go, do we have to read this? I feel very uncomfortable. Um but uh, at the same time, like, let's be honest, my my mum and dad weren't really going to have the talk with me. It was way too awkward for them. Uh, so it was kind of, it was kind of my way of understanding my body, how it was going to change, like, because I was flat chested for ages as well. And all of a sudden, bam, 14, I just had, I just had breasts. So <laughs> uh, reading, reading Dolly was a really great way to understand like where I was at in in my puberty. <laughs>
0: Do you know I'm um, Dolly? It was Dolly Doctor that taught me the word pubic. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I didn't. Actually, I shouldn't laugh because that, that taught me what pubic was too.
0: Well, I didn't know what pubic actually, like I didn't know that was word. And so I remember reading Dolly Doctor and that like the, the sealed section with my friends and I thought it was just a typo and I thought they meant public. <laughs> <laughs> so I went around like asking everybody, have you got your public hairs? Yeah, I think my public hairs were coming in, and it was just like, and I was like, like pointing to my underarm and things like that. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe like a like a little kind of um, appendix for Dolly Talk could be a good idea for like the fools like me. Okay, so you got the role of Dolly editor at age twenty three, which seems like a ridiculously young age. So, like, when did you know that you wanted to work in magazines?
2: Well, my strange little story for a strange little high school girl is that I decided when I was 16 that I wanted to be the editor of Dolly magazine. So, I actually it was actually a career choice. So, you know, other people were saying I want to be a journalist <clears throat> or I want to be a scientist. Um, and I said I want to be the editor of Dolly magazine. So, I that's that's why I became a journalist, not the other way around. So, I um ended up getting a cadetship and doing all those sorts of things, but the whole time I just was telling people I wanted to be the editor of Dolly, which when looking back, I think must I must have looked like such an idiot, but I just told everybody, but the benefit of telling people what you want is that at some point they'll hear about this job that you want, and then they'll tell you about it. And the thing about um, editorships of magazines is that they're not advertised. So it's only people in the know who know that they're available. Um, I was a feature writer. I was actually doing the women's pages. There used to be women's pages and the Daily Mirror a long time ago, back in the 80s. Um, And so I was a journalist for the women's pages. And my features Mm -hmm. editor was this fantastic woman, Jenny Gilbert, who had heard that they needed a new editor for Dolly magazine. And she'd heard me talking about it every day for years. So so she said, you have to go for this. Um, And I, of course, you know, when you're 23 and you think you can, you can change the world, right? So I didn't even think, oh, maybe I can't do that. I just thought, yeah. So I applied Uh, and I got down to the last two, but they took the internal candidate, but then they asked me to be the deputy editor. Uh, And then six months after I started there, the editor who was English went home to the UK and they gave me the job. So I was there, I was 23 years old. I couldn't believe it. It was the job of my dreams. Um, I know it's a very odd story. (laughs) I think most people are amazed that at 16, that was my goal, but it was. (laughs) And
0: so what made you want to be editor of Dolly? Like when did you, did you start reading Dolly at 16 or was it earlier? Yeah, no,
2: I started reading Dolly earlier. So I was reading Dolly probably when I was about 13 and the editor at the time was Lisa Wilkinson. And um, and I just wanted to be Lisa because the thing that Lisa did for Dolly was that she made it accessible. So you know her editor's letter was the the first thing that I read every month, and you know I was I was that girl that was at the newsagent the day that the magazine was on sale before the newsagent opened, waiting for it to open to get a copy. So I was completely obsessed, and it was for all the reasons that you've talked about that my body was changing and I didn't know anything about it. And, um, you know, my girlfriends didn't know anything more than I did. Cause you know, you, you, you talk to your friends and they don't know anything. Um, and I didn't want to talk to my mom about it. So I didn't really have any, I didn't have a big sister. I'm the big sister. I've got a little sister. So I got everything through Dolly. And, um, and while I was buying Dolly for that, I was reading about this amazing editor's life. Cause Lisa, as I said, she used to write about all the fun things she used to do and the great people she used to meet and I thought oh I just want to be I just want to be the editor of Dolly I want to be Lisa Wilkinson <laughs> Do you remember your
0: first ever Dolly that you brought
2: I don't remember the name of the model but I can tell you that she was blonde because <laughs> most of them were yeah um, blue eyes and um, the back I think the backdrop was pink or something so it was really. I can I can vividly see it. So you mentioned that, like, most of the models
0: were, you know, typically, like, blonde, and I remember that from my youth as yeah. well. Also, I was, like, a fat chubby. Well, they're the same thing, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> nullified that point. But this, you know, chubby <laughs> Aboriginal girl with a big lisp, looked nothing like the girls in Dolly, but yet I still loved it. So what was it like, you know, your, um, we mentioned your Chinese Australian,
2: yeah.
0: um, reading that magazine and, and not having people who maybe necessarily look like you?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So growing up, I'd never ever saw anybody who looked like me um, anywhere. And and that's why, when I became the editor, that was the thing that drove you know I was determined to make sure that there were women who or girls who looked like I did, and you know other girls who uh, coming through who looked like me as a teenager, that they could see themselves in the pages, because you know it, the most important uh, challenge for me was the beauty pages, because yeah. you know my eyes are different to, other people's, right? mm-hmm. and or certainly to the, to the um, young women or the the models in the in the pages of the magazines that were getting their eyes done, you know, a smoky eye on my eyes is different to a smoky eye on a Caucasian girl's eye, <laughs> and so it was difficult. I couldn't actually take any of the beauty tips from the magazine. Thankfully, there were other things that kept me with the magazine. Um, so, you know, for me, that was the missing opportunity, really. Um, and so, when I became the editor. I made sure that we always had that sort of thing in 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 the magazine. And in fact, I got into trouble once because uh, I slipped an Asian girl onto the cover. So no, <laughs> I
0: don't know if <gasps> oh you've ever my heard goodness. my story.
2: No, yeah, please tell How do. You just, yeah, awesome. just well, sneaky, sneaky <laughs> putting a woman of colour on the front cover yeah. of Dolly. Uh, well, she <laughs> was she was Eurasian, which is you know I'm yeah. I'm the same Eurasian, but um, and she was a and kind of an up and coming. She was little because, you know, she was part Chinese and she was little. And she'd been discovered, I think, by a modelling agency or something, but she wasn't getting much work. And I saw her in, you know, they come in with their little lookbooks and um and I said to the fashion editor, we should do a cover with her. And she said, Oh, okay. Well, you know, you know, you know that she's, you know, part Asian. And I said, Yeah, 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 let's do a cover with her. So we did this cover, and um, you know, and I was warned that it wouldn't sell, and um, because, you know, unfortunately it's all about putting a woman on the cover that most people want to look like, or putting a girl on the cover that most people want to look like. And at the time, I guess most people wanted to have blonde hair. In fact, I wanted to have blonde hair and <laughs> blue eyes growing up. Um, and I, you know, I did everything I could to, to look like that, which is not, you know, you can't, if you, if you don't, yeah. if that's not your genetic makeup, you can't, but you try, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's what. Uh, that's what's on the cover, that's what the, magazine, that's what the models look like. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I put this young woman on the cover and it didn't sell very well, you know, and I guess, you know, you do a um, re- revision later and you try and work out why it didn't sell and, of course, everyone assumed it was because of the racial background of the girl on the cover and maybe that was the case, I don't know, but there are other factors like the cover lines and, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things, the co- even the colour of the background matters. So um, it, didn't, it didn't stop us from trying, you know, we kept... We kept looking for um, yeah. diverse-looking models, um, but it was very tricky to, you know, to get approval for them on the cover because ultimately the editor's job is to sell magazines, and that's why it's taken so long, actually, you know, to have diversity on the cover of magazines and through the pages, because it's a commercial enterprise. <laughs> Yeah. So you know, but I think I think we're getting better at it. I think you know, magazines are getting better at putting more diverse uh, looking women on the covers. But anyway, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was you know, it was on a mission. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Marina, we're seeing now
1: Elaine Welteroth doing some really uh, interesting things with US Teen Vogue. Uh, she's she's talking a lot about gender politics and also racial politics within America. So it means that lots of um, Lots of young women are looking outside of uh, beauty and dating. They're now looking at the society around them. So I guess uh, I'm just wondering, what's stopping Australian media from touching on that?
2: Well, unfortunately, we don't really have teenage magazines anymore. That's that's one of the biggest problems mm. we have. Um, and I think that's such a shame because I actually do believe that um, if the magazines were accessible to young people, that they'd buy them, they'd read them. Um, but unfortunately, the the economics of teenage magazines haven't worked. So I think that's mm. that's the starting point. There's just not that availability anymore. But I don't know what's stopping, other than um, maybe fear. You know, editors. Mm. I, f- I feel like we need to have um, young young people editing magazines who have no fear who come from you know because i had no fear when i when i was 23 years yeah. old one of the benefits of being 23 is that i didn't know what i didn't know right so yeah. i didn't come in with a preconceived idea um other than i wanted to make sure that uh, the magazine reflected the whole of the community and yeah. not just um you know not just a particular beauty ideal and it was it's difficult because you know I I wish that we could have done more even, you know, we did some, but I wish we could have done more. And I think it is fear of, um, just fear of failure more than, you know, there are not that many jobs anymore in media. So the people that are in those roles are holding on for dear life. And I think it's Mm. making them risk averse, which is unfortunate because, you know, Miranda, as you said earlier, you need to take a risk, but you also need to be in an environment where risk is uh, encouraged and accepted um, and failure Mm. is a part of it. You know, and that's that's I think that's the challenge. That's the reason why we're not doing very much here. It's a very we're a very conservative nation. It's very strange. What makes you think where we are a conservative nation? Well, when I you know, well, maybe when I look at media, for example, um when I look at, you know, it's my it's my industry, and I look at the traditional media, um and I look at the people running the media, mm-hmm. and it's the same old people. And so it's almost, it, they're almost happier to put in someone who's failed, who's failed at one organisation to run another, than to bring in somebody new or female or you know, or, yeah. or somebody from a different background. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's because of the way that our um, industry is funded. So I think the investment, the investment community, you know, the the guys, there is this um, you know, old white male blokes making decisions, and I think mm-hmm. there is conservatism there. Uh, So I think it's a decision making. It's where the money begins. It's, it's, you know, it's always about where the money originates from. But it's a shame that our, I think, our large media organisations are in rapid decline um, because of the fact that they just haven't moved. You look at the, you know, I look at the people running them. They're still the same people. You can't continue to do things the same way and hope for change. So yeah. it's not so
0: much a conservative nation, but more like conservative power structures that well, are trying to. It,
2: it, yes, but I think yeah. that that I think the conservative power structures in a lot of industries, um, you, you know, they're also the power behind the nation. So a lot of those industries are very influential, and um, and they're making decisions that affect. Political thought, because you know, political leaders look at industry, they look at business, and make decisions based on um, what what industry is doing and thinking. So, I I think we're you know, I, well, I look at our prime minister, and I think it's a real shame that he doesn't have more courage. You know, yeah, yeah, because he because you know, I I um, met Malcolm many many years ago, and um, I think he's he he had some really strong views that um, I support, and I, I feel I just feel it's a shame that he's not talking about them. You know, and and I think that's the fear, the conservatism um, that's come once you're in a position of power. And I don't know with him whether it's so much wanting to hold on to the role because you know he's a very successful man in his own right, Um, or whether it's political pressure. But I I just I just think it's a shame that when people get into positions of power that sometimes they change the way they think and feel because that's your moment, right? This is your moment where Mm -hmm. you're actually able to then you finally can do what you want. So you
0: went from being like wanting to be the editor of Dolly, yep. and now you're the chair of the West Tigers, and that's an unpaid role. Yes. Am I correct in saying
2: that? Okay, so why? Like, what are you
0: hoping <laughs> to achieve? What What was the like impetus
2: for that for that position? Well, the the main reason. Um, well, first of all, my you know my youngest son is a mad West Tigers fan, um, <laughs> and you know his club had. Struggled, you know. The club had struggled for years, and you know, as the mother of a child whose club is struggling, you know, you you go through pain. You know? So <laughs> yeah. um, most people just go and like <laughs> volunteer at the sausage sizzle. They don't become chair <laughs> of the club. Well, like. the, well, the other the other reason too is that I'm really passionate about gender diversity, and um, and I have been for many years because, again, you know, red red rag to a bull for me is if you say that. Um, oh, you know, I can't do anything or a woman can't do anything or, you know, or, or a, somebody with a Chinese background can't do I'm going to do it. Right? So, <laughs> so there were very few women um, in rugby league and I had previously spent six years on the board of Netball Australia. I'm not a netballer. Um, I'd, I'd come in as an independent director from um, to offer a diverse viewpoint and I really I, I realised I could make a difference so I thought that was great. Um, but having spent six years on a board that was primarily female, um, my next sports board I decided would only be if I could be on a board where um, diversity was re- required from a gender point of view. Yeah. And so the, just coincidentally, I got um, approached by a somebody who is associated with the NRL to um, to interview for an independent role with the West Tigers. So they were looking for three independent directors. the club the club you know, had been through a whole range of financial problems and they were looking to change the board so i interviewed um i was appointed um i didn't expect to be the chair and i had no desire to be the chair <laughs> but at the first board meeting the board appointed me chair um and i was a bit shocked and almost you know i was in that position where i thought oh i don't i don't know if i can do this and then i thought you know what how often how often does a woman get the opportunity to chair a board for a start but secondly chair a board in a, in an industry or a sector, or, you know, particularly a sport like the NRL, yeah. uh, which is so heavily male dominated. So I thought I have to take my own advice. I always tell women that you have to back yourself and go for it. You say, yes, you work it out. And if you get offered an opportunity to do something in a man's world, you have to do it. You actually have to do it because somebody has to do it for the rest of the women. <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: Because it's not like someone worse will
2: yeah, well, well yes. Like, well, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or, or no one will. No and, one will. Which yeah. is even worse, right? So yeah. for me, it's even worse because I would prefer to have, you know, I think a lot of us say, and we you know, and we don't, it sounds like um, it's a funny thing to say, but it's true that um, the definition of equality will be when there are as many mediocre women, are, you know, in senior positions as mediocre men, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, But clean. there are no mediocre women, let me tell you, because <laughs> women have to jump through so many hoops. So I've decided that I you know, I would do this, um, if, if not for me, then for other women. Um, and I, and I really love it, but also I have so many young women that come up to me now and say, "I, you know, I'd like to be the chair of the West Tigers one day. I'd like to be chair of a football club. And I think fantastic because that means that as a role model, I've been able to, uh, make, make something possible for other women. So I hope, I hope that, um, more women get the opportunity to do things like this. NRL still has a pretty, you know, it, it doesn't have the
0: best reputation when it comes to its treatment of women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's pretty scary. Why do you think as a society, as like an, as an Australian culture, we still accept this? From our sporting
2: yeah, people?
0: From, in or? NRL, yeah, in particular NRL. Yeah. Our yeah, just in videos. general. Yeah. Oh well, well within yeah, yeah, NRL.
2: Let's go NRL. Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't. I don't think we accept it. I think unfortunately it happens. Um I, I do think the sport has largely, I mean, largely um, been positive at um, making a very firm stand against it. Uh, one of the challenges we have is that um, the players are employed by the clubs, and so. The clubs make a decision around what's what can be tolerated and what what won't be tolerated and you know within within my club and and I don't you know maybe it's because I'm a female chair um, but I have another woman on my board as well but we've got I've got a very strong um, male board that we uh, we have a zero tolerance towards um, behavior like that towards women um, but not every not every club, is consistent with their, you know, with each other, I guess. So um, it's it's difficult, I guess, from a central body point of view, if the clubs are the people who end up making the decision around um, what the penalty is. Um, yeah, look, you know, I'm quite vocal, but people expect me to be, you know, if, yeah. if there's poor behaviour um, within our sport. I'd, as I said, I'd like, I think it's important the men speak out against it.
0: Do you think that resistance like outside of your club within that football culture is less about people not wanting change and more about misogyny and that having women in higher levels of executive power, uh, you know, it, it kind of represents, you know, someone intruding into that old boys' club. I mean, you've had Alan Jones, you know, was one oh, of yeah. the people who've kind of come after you, um, you know, with <laughs> accusations. <your> honor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Um, you know, and and I think. You know, would you say that that trickle down of that misogyny is the abuse um, of and harassment and, and maybe you know that toxic culture that you see of uh, certain players towards women and the treatment of women? Mm. So, would you say it it's
2: it's more misogynistic than it is a resistance to change? Uh, look, there's definitely some. You know, I, I would call it unconscious bias, and that's probably being generous. Um, <laughs> so, there's definitely some people who believe that they um are not treating women differently, um, but you know it's it definitely comes out, and it comes out in even the quotes. I mean, I read quotes in the paper, and people, you know, there are quotes from people saying, um that woman should be that woman should be sacked. and and you know I'm looking for the reason why, and I can't find it. You know? yeah. <laughs> I think. But, but of course, it's got nothing to do with my gender. So, yes, I think there's some of that in there, absolutely. Um, and i and i but I think, in many ways, they don't even realize. I think people don't realize i don't I don't know if they did you know they uh, deliberately set out to be like that. and I think it's just the way the culture is. So we've got a long way to go, I think, as an Australian culture, um in terms of understanding that there is so much unconscious bias and and trying to change that um and and so it's played out through the media um because the media is a reflection of our society, so uh, I guess it's not a surprise that you know these are some of the issues that I've had to deal with. Um, but you know, look, they'll tell you it's because it's not not about that. It's because I'm just I'm just hopeless, and so therefore, but you know, look, I'm on other boards, and they don't seem to think I'm hopeless. So, uh, Marina, how do you uh,
1: prepare to be thick-skinned? I. I think, I think I've got a thick skin, but then other days I just feel really vulnerable. So how do you, yeah. How do you, what, what's your, what do you say to young women?
2: Um, it is the most common question that I get actually, because it goes back to confidence, I think. Um, and, and so I just, I mean, I say to women, back yourself, but clearly, you know, it's easier said than done. Um, and I've, you know, I've always backed myself. Um, and I just say to myself, you know, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Really? What's the worst thing that can happen? And if it's, and if people are writing, um, things about you that are untrue or saying things about you that are untrue or that are very clearly designed with an agenda, mm. um, I look at that and I think, well, inevitably they're going to look stupid. Um, and what I find now is that I just take the high road. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just ignore it. Uh, I don't read a lot of the negativity mm. either. So Sometimes I find out that somebody's written something about me because you know one of my directors might ring me and say, "Oh, you know, have you checked the paper today?" And I just go, "You know what? I'm not going to read it." Mm. Um, and if I don't read it, it doesn't it doesn't touch me. Um, if it's something that is you know that is true about the club and it's a fair criticism, then of course we'll deal we deal with it. Um, but if it's just you know an attack on me, um, I just don't read it. I had a lot of people around the time of the you know the Alan Jones incident. <laughs> because um, Alan was um, trying to incite um, a rally to get me sacked. Um, <laughs> it and wasn't it, very it's, successful. No. But again, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, it, this will be interesting to see what happens. Um, what actually happened was a lot of our fans and members piled on social media to defend me and, you know, w- were horrified by the treatment. Um, and that's probably the best uh, that's the best outcome. So I just ignore it and um back back myself, stay true. I think it's really important to stay true. Yep. And um and then just you've got to keep going because if you start to second guess yourself, then you lose your strength. But I don't look I don't know why, I don't know how I became resilient. I don't know. I mean look maybe it's because I was in the media. And the media is a male dominated industry too. And I started yeah. in newspapers where really back in the day when I was in newspapers, um, there was definitely a hierarchy of, you know, what men did and what women did. And, you know, as I said, I was on the women's section writing, you know, from a very young age. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. Like madmen. Yeah. 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 So, you know, some of my experiences made me more resilient. Um, But I also think it's your upbringing. I have a father um, who from a very young age, and my father's Chinese, right? So Mm. my father didn't ever think that um, I wouldn't be anything other than the f- first female prime minister of the country <laughs> <laughs> i f- sorry Dad i didn't I'm not that, but you know he he always thought I'd going to university and always you know so I never thought that I wouldn't, which was kind of un- unusual for the time i think um so i so I think a strong family background um can help with that and Surrounding yourself with people who love you and you know family and friends. Um, so when there is criticism, I mean, I now like whenever there's anything in the paper that's negative, I have this strong group of friends that I that I've known since I was 12 years old, oh, men and women goodness. who send me messages and go, you know, we love you, you know, we support you, and all this kind of stuff. And and I don't need that anymore, but it's lovely to have it. Yeah. So I think that's I think that helps you because again, uh, you just you know you almost have to stay um, completely focused tunnel vision, forget the noise. And that strengthens your resolve.
0: Yeah. But my family now, I have to tell them they get on, sometimes they get onto the internet and they start arguing with like people who say (laughs) bad things, like my cousins, and I'll get into these big fights with people and I'll have to call them and be like, stop it. Yeah. It's embarrassing, number one. But thank <laughs> I've you, had to I do appreciate that with my dad.
2: it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <bless>. Same. <laughs>
0: they take it harder than I. Yeah. I find like my, my family take it a lot more personally yeah. than I do. Yeah, yeah.
2: but yeah. but that's good. Well, yeah. that's good. I don't mean it. I don't mean that it's good. I mean it's good for you. Yeah. Because that shows that if they're taking it harder than you, it means you, you, that your resilience is very, you're very strong, and increasingly strong, and that's important. Mm. Um, but people who are not you feel the pain of it more than you do. And I feel the same with my family. So my dad gets really upset if he reads something or hears something about me in the paper. And unfortunately it's quite regular. Um, and so I've had to say to him, just don't read it, don't read it. Cause he wants to respond. He wants to write something. And I say, oh. no, 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 dad, you've got the same surname as me and it'll, it'll just keep going and we don't want to give it oxygen. So I keep saying, you know, just take the oxygen out of it. Yeah. Just shut it down. Don't respond. Um, But I understand the family and friends' pain because, as I said, I I get that.
0: Similar. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned that your dad is very superstitious.
2: Yes. (laughs) Gosh, you've done your research. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. When you were talking about when you were buying, was it your first
2: apartment? Yeah. And he marked a lot of them off the list because of, like, what were some of those reasons? Yeah, well, because my dad, because my dad's Chinese, right, so feng shui is a really, you know, it's, and I don't profess to understand it. Um, But my dad would never let me buy anything that he hadn't seen. And so I fell in love with this particular apartment and he turned (laughs) up and he said, and he immediately said no, because it was on, it was in the wrong position on the street. It was facing the wrong way. It had the wrong number, the whole thing. And I was, and I was thinking, but it's got a great kitchen and it's, you know, beautifully renovated. And then we went off to see another Apartment that I could afford because it was my my first apartment. I couldn't afford very much, right? So I went to this other apartment, and it and it really needed a full renovation. And I just thought, oh no! And he said, this is the one because it, had the, it was the right number. It was number eight, which is the lucky number, and it was positioned so it was facing as if we couldn't you know couldn't see the the ocean, but it was in the pos- position where it was facing towards the ocean. All the things that you know, um, and so he made me buy that, and <laughs> so I, and of course. You know, I did, and this is the strange thing, right? Because you know, why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> why did I buy that and not the other one that I was in love with? Um, just because my dad said no, this has be- better feng shui, and I think it's because you know that's part of your upbringing, um, and it and it clearly. Even though I wouldn't say I was superstitious, I was probably too scared to go against my dad's superstition in case something <laughs> happened. So I think I am superstitious, actually. Well, you did say like
0: one of the, was it your first year, at Do- Dolly as the editor, um, it was practically planned on advice from psychics. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: That's right. Do you still see psychics? <laughs> I haven't seen psychics for ages, but... Um, Yes, yeah, certainly when I was in my early 20s, um, my then deputy editor and I, we used to go and see them all the time. Um, and the psychics would tell us what's going to happen next in the next few months. And, and sometimes it was conflicting, of course. You know, you mm-hmm. see enough of them and um, I don't know, <laughs> look, I don't know whether it's... <laughs> but I think the great thing about that was that that came through in the magazine in terms of, you know, we, I, we used to write stories about it and... What we had done, I think, was tapped into the psyche of young women uh, because there were a lot of women who um, needed something extra, needed some other belief, because, you know, when you're a teenage girl or in your early 20s and you feel a bit lost, mm. yeah. um, that's really what we were exhibiting. We are <laughs> exhibiting this yeah. sense of um, we're not really sure, we're going to have, you know, we, we're going to get advice from certain areas um, and have a bit of fun with it. So I think that's I think it actually helped make the magazine feel like fun. Because a lot yeah. of people used to write to me and say, it feels like it, it's a fun place to work. I'd love to work there. And I think that's why people bought it. <laughs> the psychics helped with the fun. <laughs> <laughs> so sales were good that year. <laughs> sales, were, sales were really good. Oh, we wow, actually okay. did uh, yeah. We actually did lift our sales and, um, yeah, we had success with Dolly. It was, you know, I was very – I was really fortunate. That particular experience set up my whole career and it gave me the confidence – to feel as if I could do anything, you know, because I did go on and do many other things that um, I had no experience in and just say, yeah, I'm going to do this, you know, and just kind of give it a go, which gave me the confidence, I think, if, if Dolly hadn't worked out um maybe my career would have looked different and do you think you would have had that confidence like and
0: what i'm i'm loving from you is this i do you have to back yourself have to back you know it's no one yep. if you don't do it no one else will that's right do you think you would have had that confidence to back yourself if if you how do i put this i don't want to be i don't want to make assumptions but if you weren't outside the mold so to speak if you yeah, weren't maybe. you know that you know maybe. kind of asian australian yes. you know wanting to see something different having that yeah. naivety um yeah. Do you think we've, we've not kind of being from, like not coming from the inside comes a lack of that expectation?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I call it the kind of challenger model. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you're challenging the norm. And I've all, I have I guess I've always done that, and it's because I have been outside the norm. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't look like the girl on the cover of magazines. Um, and, you know, and when you're going through high school, all the boys are in love with the blonde hair, blue-eyed girl. In fact, my best friend was blonde hair, blue-eyed, and all the boys were in love with her. And, you know, (laughs) so all those sorts of things. Um, And so you do, you know, I I, I guess you do um, have to try harder, work harder, think differently uh, to try and get to get to where you want to get to because it's not, um, you don't feel like it's an automatic thing. So my whole career has been like that actually. You know, I wanted to be the editor of Elle, for example, when I, uh, after Dolly, and I was told by the publisher that there was no way that he was ever going to give me Elle because I didn't have any experience in fashion. Um, (gasps) I think he might have also criticised what I was wearing at the time. (laughs) And I remember thinking, (gasps) but I thought, you know, some people will just go crumble and think, okay, well, this is my lot in life. And I just went, I'll show you. So (laughs) I went off and I did a whole bunch of other things. And a few years later, I was the editor of Elle. So, you know, I think (laughs) I'm quite determined. and that's probably comes from um, things not being, that it hasn't been easy. Things don't come to me easily.
1: We ask every, we ask every uh, guest on our show this question, when did you first realise that your race mattered?
2: Oh, wow. Um, when did I first realise that my race mattered? You know, I think probably when I was the editor of Dolly, actually, when I became the editor of Dolly, because that's when I realised that I could make a difference with regards to my race. Um, it's the first time I felt that I could uh, I had the power to impact um other other girls that looked like me. Um you know, I received a lot of letters from young women saying, finally, there's somebody who looks like me. Okay. And uh, I've met women recently, actually, and I and meet women all the time who are part Asian or even Asian, who read Dolly when I was the editor. And even if, there wasn't anyone on the cover. My my editor's letter was enough for people to say, this is somebody who looks like me. And so therefore inspired them that they could potentially um, have a role like mine. So, you know, it's about role modeling. And I, th- I think that was the first time I felt that I was a role model for women who looked like me.
1: Marina, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you
2: so much. Going to take a lot from that, especially
0: um maybe get some feng shui advice.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll introduce you to my dad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
0: We'll be back next week with Pretty for an Aboriginal. But until then, tell your friends about us or, you know, your acquaintances or that person you're creeping on on Insta. Find (laughs) your DMs with our podcast. I'm sure it will score you points.
1: Creeping is so wrong. But make sure you listen to us on iTunes or any good podcast app. And
0: leave us a review. We read all of them. Let me repeat, all of them. We do. We do. We know where you at. (laughs) Or you can find us on Twitter if you're nice. So until next time, remember that you're not pretty for an Aboriginal. You're pretty because you're an Aboriginal.
1: Girl, you slide!
0: Pretty for an Aboriginal is hosted and developed by Nikia Louie and Miranda Tapsall. Produced and edited by Nicola Harvey and Cinnamon Nippard from Audiocraft. A big thanks to our supporter, Rode Microphones and BuzzFeed's Director of Audio, Eleanor Keegan, and the entire BuzzFeed podcast team. This is a BuzzFeed Australia production.
1: Bye. Bye.